Hello and welcome to the Doomer Optimism Podcast. This is your host, Nate, Tornado Nate, and I am interviewing uh, Sam Knowles today. Hi, Sam. How's it going? Good. So um, why don't, to kick off here, why don't you give us like just the short version of uh, you know who you are and what you do, uh, and then we'll kind of dive in. You know, Sam does some really cool stuff with Ag that he'll tell you about, um, and that's mostly what we're going to talk about today. Um, but why don't you go ahead and just just tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure. Yeah. So Sam Knowlton, uh, I'm a agronomy consultant, and um, I do a lot of work with tree crops, agroforestry. Um, recently, in the last seven or so years i've been doing a lot with coffee and cacao um so i I do a lot of work in latin america um also work throughout the us and canada and um really kind of got into this work gradually over time and uh started out with a background in ecology dove really deep into permaculture and then kind of found my way back into uh agriculture more kind of broad scale uh, agriculture in terms of agronomy, plant health, uh, soil health, um, that sort of stuff. So done all sorts of, uh, of stuff in, in the world of agriculture. Um, but really my focus is kind of perennials, tree crops, um, that sort of thing. Excellent. Um, so yeah, apologies to start with. I had your I had your uh, last name off a little bit, so I apologize about that. Um, <laughs> well, so with this, sometimes I like to start either you know really uh, specific on one uh, small thing and broaden out, or like with the big picture and then kind of uh, maybe drill down. And I think right now I kind of want to start with the big picture because the kind of one of the main uh, things I, you know, I follow your, I think, you know, I love the Twitter threads that you do. Um, they're you know, really informative and often very inspiring. Um, and, uh, and th- th- I have, you know, huge overlap in common interests here, you know, really into uh, civil pasture, agroforestry. Um, and so I want to talk specifically about all that stuff, but I think one of the things I appreciate most is, um, you know, doing, doing the work that you're doing in agriculture, um, and trying to kind of, not just uh, re-envision, but, you know, uh, actually apply um, what were, you know, ecological concepts and, you know, other forms of agriculture um, other than sort of the, the status quo, you know, where I'm at in essential noids, corns and beans. Um, and so you'll hear a lot, you know, a whole lot um, if you're around and follow agriculture a lot, you know, the idea that, you know, this is what we have to do, this sort of like intensively chemically intensive tillage intensive big machines this is what we have to do to feed the world um and so i kind of would like to just start out real big picture your take on so the, the, this idea of like we, we we need this really high tech uh high input version of agriculture to feed the world that that's what's required and if we um, want to try other things or dink around at the margins i mean that's all well and good but but it's really not serious if we want to feed the world i'm curious about your take on sort of that which like i said i think that's if you if you talk to people with it at all sort of a conventional um view on ag that's where you get to extremely quickly yeah 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 i mean it's interesting i i only kind of started thinking about this more recently um and it was kind of 
as I started writing more, putting stuff out there, and especially on on Twitter, where it's like, you never know who you're going to encounter when you put an idea out. And I was, you know, putting some stuff out there. And that was that was what would come up immediately from some some people um, is, well, yeah, this makes no sense. How could we possibly feed the world, you know, doing this sort of thing? Or, you know, like you mentioned, it, it pretty quickly got to that point of like, you know, feeding the world. And I just started thinking about it more and kind of digging into it. And, you know, right away, if you just look at the, the way we farm in the U S especially in the Midwest, you know, in an area that once had probably the most fertile soil, you know, in, in maybe the world, definitely in North America, I mean, just a incredible system. And 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 basically we grow corn and soybeans and we've depleted water soil you name it um and you know 40% of that goes to fuel you know biofuels um and it's it's not a very efficient production system in in the sense of like producing nutrients um and it, you know heavily subsidized there's there's a whole list of reasons why it, it just makes no sense in terms of feeding the world. Like if if that's the objective to feed the world, I think it's easy to start right there and just say this makes no sense. Um, so I think you know that that was like the the first thing that that I looked at, and then I started looking at like other causes for. Um, you know, like food waste, for example, and refrigeration and how that contributes to, uh, you know, a massive waste of, of food. I think it's like a third of all food harvested is lost due to lack of, uh, you know, proper cold chain or refrigeration somewhere along the, the process. Um, and, you know, I, I just think it, it quickly, like, it quickly becomes uh, an argument that's not really very sound. Um, and then what, like, then I think about like the responsibility of feeding the world. Like if you look at one particular region, one particular agricultural region, the way I see it is that that region should be set up in a way that it can sustain itself, you know, rather than have this responsibility to feed the world. If each bioregion was set up in a way that it was producing food for that particular bioregion, or, you know, maybe there was some, uh, you know, intelligent trade relationships between them. Uh, I think that's a, a, it's a much better starting point for figuring out how to feed people. Um, but this thing of like feeding the world, I think just gets, it's, it's just um, a distraction from what's really needed. I mean, it's like the, I feel like the same people who make that argument are the same people who, you know, are like marching in the streets for peace in another country while they're, you know, a jerk to their neighbor or, you know, raise kids who don't behave well, stuff like that. You know, it's like, we got to start locally first. Right. I mean, that's kind of my general, philosophy um 
And so, that is very likely why you, why you're here today, <laughs> because that's my general philosophy as well. I think that's what yeah. has definitely drawn me to your, uh, you know, to your, your account and why I enjoy uh, your perspective so much, um, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, starting locally and, and, you know, in the example, I, I always talk about the example too, of, you know, exactly you're agitating for peace a thousand miles away, um, you know, rather than focused, you know, here and now in your community. Um, yeah. Uh, be it food, be it political issues, whatever, you know, it's like, you know, do what is uh, around you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. So, I mean, I've, you know, I know there, I know there are decent arguments for this whole feeding the world thing, but a lot of it just doesn't make sense. I mean, the, the way we're producing food on a large scale isn't actually doing much in terms of feeding the world. I mean, it's, it's basically just running this um, cycle of overproducing cheap, you know, grains that are devoid of nutrients and, you know, putting money back in the pockets of the, of the companies who are selling the seeds, which are the same companies that are selling the, you know, all the pesticides and often chemicals and everything. So it's just one big yeah. negative feedback loop in that sense. Um, Absolutely. You know, it makes me think about like what, so what is, you have to think about, I think, what is it optimized for? Because you say like, well, it's not very efficient. And I think it clearly isn't, you know, if you think about like how to efficiently produce and distribute food, it's obviously going to be done bioregionally, right? Like, I feel like that's obvious, you know, like it just, um, you know, you, you hear all these stories about the food system, about, you know, things like salmon being caught in Alaska, shipped to China where it's processed and then sold in uh, you know, Florida or something crazy, you know, and, and the food chain, chain is full of these things. So it's just like, yeah, it's, and that's supposedly efficient. So it's clearly not, I think obviously, uh, it doesn't pass the eyeball test of efficiency, uh, but it is efficient in some way because, um, you know, so we have this sort of interesting, uh, idea of feeding the world and efficiency that is built on certain assumptions that, maybe are divorced from, I mean, not maybe that are completely divorced from, you know, ecological efficiency, but it is some sort of efficiency. So what is the food system sort of optimized for, if not for actually producing nutrients for people? I mean, I think it's, it's just, um, it's optimized to run this industrial feedback loop, you know, where it's basically, um, how many, how many different ways can this, these same entities benefit from, uh, the production of, of one single good, you know? And it's like, it's, it's a pretty good deal for them, you know, for, for, for seed companies, for example, who sell the seeds that require, you know, certain pesticides that require a certain amount of fertilizer every year it's a good um, business model in that sense. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm, I'm not like anti-capitalism or anti-globalism. Like I'm, I, I'm not that extreme, but I just see that this just doesn't make sense. Like if the argument is we need to feed the world and, you know, another, another aspect of feeding the world is maintaining ecological function, you know, so that there's, you know, our land has the carrying capacity to actually produce food and to, 
you know, um, to, 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 to remain a viable habitat for animals and etc. I mean, it's, that's something that's rarely mentioned in this conversation. So yeah. if we, if we want to feed the world and feed a growing population, we need to maintain the, you know, ecological function of our land and really improve it. I mean, there's few places where it's, it's functioning optimally. So it really needs to be improved first and foremost. Um, so, you know, like I said, it's, it, this is, this is like something that I'm, I'm, I'm kind of thinking about still and kind of change. I'm, I'm open to changing my mind. And, um, I just think, I just think that it's a, it's a, it's a really poor argument. I mean, this whole, we can't do things a different way because it, you know, how are we going to feed the world? Um, it's, it's just very linear and there's not much linear about, you know, ecology or agriculture in, in the way I see it. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I think that's a, a really, um, really important point that the, the, you know, linear, uh, you know, it's, it, it's like you, you, you can only think about, within this industrialized kind of system or mindset, you can only think about so many variables at a time, right? You know, you got a few inputs you can think about and you got, you know, one, two, three outputs that you can think about, right? And you want the, and, you know, natural systems don't, you know, work that way as, you know, put this in and get this out. You know, there's, you know, yeah. so many circular, um, you know, so many circular arrangements and, why don't you give an example? What, you know, you always give these great examples on Twitter, these really wonderful threads about um, uh, systems that are more that produce ecologically. And so, I wonder if you could pick, um, you know, you know, as a, one of the systems that you've described, and just talk a little bit about how that produces food in a different way. Like, what are the differences, um, and you know, how you know, just describe one if if you're if you can bring one to mind. Yeah, I mean, let's see. The you know, I guess you you mentioned silvopasture in the beginning, and I and I think the um, the Spanish deso or or the what they call the montada in in Portugal is incredible example. Uh, you know, it's it's been going on for somewhere between like two and six thousand years. This vast silvopasture system. Um, you know, that includes trees and pasture, cattle, pigs, um, and, you know, other animals in some cases, and then also some row cropping, you know, some annual grain production. Um, and really, like, I think the, what it's based on is basically, like, people understood the land that they were they were working with and and came up with a system that fit the essence of the land and allowed the that that essence to express itself more um so rather than you know take this kind of like hilly country and plow it all up and grow grains to ship off to another location um they figured out how to manage the trees so that the trees didn't grow too dense so that you know um they, inhib they they inhibited the the pasture and then figured out how to stock animals properly and graze them in the system and also you know take advantage of the 
you know, there's a, um, it's a home oak is the kind of predominant tree species that produce a really rich acorn, not only for like human consumption, but it's, you know, consumed by the, by the pigs, uh, in that area. So, um, you know, rather than like imprint a foreign idea on the land, they, like I said, they kind of discovered the essence of the land and how to really cultivate that. And, um, it's a, it's a very productive system that fits the land, captures the water, you know, builds soil year after year and is very productive. And there's also a, a really unique and deep food culture built around this system, you know, which is something that you look at, like, you know, in the U S the, you know, the, the big agricultural areas, like what, is there a food culture? I mean, I don't know where you live in central Illinois, is there like a much of a food culture built around the, you know, the agriculture system there? No, the food, there is a food culture, but it is not built around the agriculture. Like that's, that, that's one of the things there's vestiges of it, you know, like, um, but it isn't, um, you know, when I moved here, one of the, um, things that was shocking to me was uh, a neighbor of ours. Who's a dear friend, you know, lovely, uh, lo lovely people. Um, and, uh, has, you know, uh, runs, does corn and bean in the thousands upon thousands of acres, like a big, you know, big operation. Um, and has cattle, you know, has a, a sizable herd of cattle. Um, and we were talking about it and he told me, you know, and I mentioned something about locker and, you know, side of beef or whatnot. And he's like, Oh no, we, we, we just buy ours from the, from high B. Yeah, you know, and my jaw just hit the floor. Like I wasn't prepared for that. I was like, "What? What? What? Just what? <laughs> just, yeah. You know." And that was how, and the, you know, that was a real moment for me to realize just how divorced, um, you know, food had actually come from from how people live here. Right? Even the people producing the food don't even eat the food that they're producing. Um, yeah. At least not until it's been you know run through. Uh, you know, run through a, a feedlot and then through a processing plant and then through a supply chain and then back, you know, it's like, yeah, just, I thought, you know, so that, so you, it's like a, a food culture is one that, you know, you know directly, um, you know, you're growing things to eat, you know, and so then, and then, you know, you're, 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 the way you eat is built around, you know, what you can grow there. And then this is just the opposite of that. So there isn't, I mean, there are like local dishes and, and I think it's the vestiges sometimes like fried chicken, mm -hmm. things, things like that are really popular here that, you know, used to be, you know, uh, you know, they go out and wring the neck of a chicken, fry the chicken. That's what you eat. But that's, you know, it's, it's not, you know, you, fried chicken is still a really popular food, of course, in, in this area, but it's, it's, you know, goes through uh, a whole chain before it gets to the plate that has really nothing to do with, uh, you know, how it's produced. There's no link anymore. I mean, very yeah. little, very little. You have to look pretty hard and it's not, uh, I don't think you could call it anything like a culture at this point. Yeah. Yeah. I, I see that often. And I mean, I think that's an important aspect of this is, is, is having some sort of, um, you know, culture around the food that's produced in a region. And I, and I, I, I just see that so much. Um, another, you know, different example, but in the same vein as coffee. Um, some of the worst coffee I've, I've had in my life is on coffee farms or in, you know, the best coffee growing regions in the world. 
and 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 oftentimes the growers or the you know field workers the agronomists have never tasted the coffee from their own farm because it's shipped off right away and you know exported um so they don't even know one if they're growing something of quality or or what it's even like um and you know in a lot of these countries it was rare five years ago to find like a specialty coffee shop where you could even as a tourist experience the the coffee of a of a region um it's changing a little bit but mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um you know it's just something i've always found interesting and, and observed in lots of different areas so that is i i share that 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 fascination you know and, and, and today you know when we think about food culture um, there's a little, there's been that, you know, kind of farm to table boom, which is sort of interesting, but a lot of what, you know, it's, it's like, a it's about sort of novelty for novelty sake sometimes. And, and, and so much of it is, um, kind of washed out and international, which is fine, but it's like, I think what's one, one of the things that's most fascinating and always has been most fascinating to me is, is, is particularities of you know, food culture, like I'm, I'm not interested in like, what's the best recipe in the world, but like, what is a, a local food that is sort of produced and made and handed down that is sort of unique to, um, this particular place like that, that, that's really, yeah. and then because it not only then is about the food you're eating, but it, there's a whole life way that it, that supports that thing, right? Like there's people who yeah. um, grow it. There's people who process it. There's people who understand how to, you know, create just exactly what it is that you're eating. And I find that to be, you know, really fascinating and, and something that, you know, once that's lost, it all just kind of becomes um, washed out in a big, um, uh, you know, in the big consumer market. And it, it, I think it loses a lot. Yep. Yep. Um, yeah. And I mean, so I guess just going back to kind of what you were asking about, like so these examples of, of systems or places, um, I'm just kind of thinking of like, kind of the overarching principles that I've, I've seen as I've, you know, I've, I've written about some of these and, and definitely read a bunch about it and visited some of them. Uh, and, you know, like the, the Inca had another really fascinating system, uh, the Incan empire in Peru. And they, one of, one of the things that they did really well, well, a couple of the things is they, captured water and moved it to where it was most needed so they had this incredible system of terraces and also um, aqueducts to capture and move water Um, and then they also transformed um, you know really undesirable land in terms of producing food into something that was pretty bountiful Um, another Another example is the, the chinampas in Mexico, outside of Mexico City, the, the floating gardens. Um, that was another one where it was very, the, the, the way that they worked with water in order to produce uh, a productive system was first and foremost. And again, it was, it was, it was um, taking a land that was completely unproductive in terms of, uh, you know, food and, um, you know, fiber etc building materials and made it very productive um so what i see today with the way we're doing agriculture in most places is where um there's a complete neglect for the way we're working with water and it's it's wasteful 
um, rather than capture water and, and utilize it, you know, it's, it's basically pumping water and, you know, it's just running off the land. Um, where I'm, where taking, I'm at, in the, where I'm at in the Midwest, you know, we have, um, from a certain perspective <laughs> too much, you know, water at certain uh-huh. times of the year. So they, um, you know, everybody facilitates water leaving, you know, by putting in tiling. And so, um, you know, which essentially just allows, it does reduce erosion, um, within that system. Um, mm-hmm. but, uh, yeah. So every, uh, April, um, May, you know, the water, you know, is just basically piped off. Um, and then, you know, and then you have drought in July <laughs> or August. And yeah, there's exactly. no water. There's, the, the soil is not holding water anymore. Um, right. And, and so, um, that's how water is managed here. I mean, nobody yeah. builds retaining. I mean, every once in a while you'll see a retaining pond or something for people to have cattle, but that's not even, I mean, uh, cattle are just kind of a, 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 basically a side hustle for people out here anymore. Either it's all grains and grain and beans and, yeah. Um, and yeah, they facilitate the water leaving. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 it's like agriculture designed as a, <clears throat> as a parking lot, you know, just move the water off as, as quickly as possible. And, you know, once it once it's off your lot, no longer your problem. You know, um, and part of that is 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 perennials are so, uh, you know, um, lacking in that in in that type of system. You know, with with mm-hmm. some trees and perennials, you could be infiltrating that water a little bit deeper and and utilizing it. And um, so, yeah, I mean, there's that example. I've seen that. Uh, similar thing in coffee as well. In a lot of these coffee growing regions, um, people could count on the rain coming almost to the day every year. And all of the activities, uh, you know, from pruning to fertilizing to harvesting to processing were kind of planned around this little window of when the rain would come, because that's when the trees would flower and kind of begin the cycle of, of uh, the next harvest. And, um, that's changed a little bit and things have dried out in a lot of these regions, mostly because they've cut down so many trees. Um, and basically what people did was what you described. They would, they would get too much water at certain periods of time. So they would just shed it off as quickly as possible. You know, you won't see a retaining pond or any sort of system to kind of slowly infiltrate the water. And then, you know, a month later, it's super dry and the trees start withering and, 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 you know, you lose significant yield as a result. So, you know, whether it's too much water or too little water, wherever it is, I just, I see that as kind of one of the underlying problems with agriculture across the board is there's just no regard for the way we're using water. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a really common theme with everyone I've talked to. Um, look, thinking about ag from a ecological perspective, it's almost everybody uh, brings up what you're bringing up, which is just like, yeah, water is necessary for life, and how you manage water is um, uh, paramount to getting productivity uh, from from the earth. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's the it's absolutely the most limiting factor. I mean, and I I've had people argue with me recently about that. I, I, I wrote something about that and I had people coming back to me saying, well, actually, no, it's, you know, the most limiting factor is nitrogen and you just need to kind of look at this 
calculation and and see how you know I'm right about that. It's like, but there's no nutrient uptake without water. You know, I mean, it, it stops at, after a certain point. So, um, you know, I think I think that's kind of the one of the big contrasting points between the majority of agriculture today and these systems that worked for thousands of years and fed large amounts of people. Um, and then the other one that I see as, as a big contrasting point is in most cases where we're farming today are these, like I mentioned in the Midwest, some of those soils were some of the richest in the world. And we've degraded them to a point where, you know, they just don't produce. I've been on farms that no longer produce and there's, there's no longer a response to fertilizers because this, the soil is so degraded and so devoid of life um, that, you know, they're, they're just not getting any sort of response. So, you know, we've taken these, these rich soils and these places with, you know, plentiful water and brought them to the point where they no longer produce versus, you know, these other systems that took, you know, barren, rocky soils, uh, and, you know, made them very abundant and, and productive. My cat snuck in here with me. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, even on our place. So, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've mentioned this on, on the, the podcast before, so I won't go too much into our farm. We are, um, we've been here for uh, 10 years and we have, um, there's about 300 acres. And over the last five or six years, we've been working to take over the pasture ourselves, my, you know, my wife and, and boys and I, and we still have um, a good, um, 120, 130 acres that are row crop that we, you know, work with uh, a couple of Mennonite brothers who farm it. And they, they, it is certified organic ground and they, they farm it organically. It's kind of one of those things that's like a step in the right direction. You know, there's real problems with the, you know, they, they, you know, you have to really overtill in my opinion. And, and it's not necessarily the ultimate system, but it's a step in the right direction. It allows us to not have to d- dump chemicals everywhere. But one of the interesting things to uh, your point is we had this, um, old hay field you know it was an old hay, like it was kind of you know wasn't producing good hay anymore and we're going to turn it into in about three years you know we're, we're doing nrcs plan in about three years we're going to um put it into uh native grasses um but in the meantime you know we kind of um let them they're going to farm it for three years with you know corn and beans organically so, so they're going to do that there um and um, this was the first year that they farmed it in corn. It was like like a thirty acre, or no, maybe like a twenty acre section. And mm. again, it had been in perennial, it, it, not very productive anymore. But it had been in perennial and hadn't been farmed at all. And man, the yield they got off of that was incredible. It was better than any yield they got anywhere ever. Um, you know, just uh, basically something that had been left alone for a while. Um, and still extracted. I mean, they still had hay cut off of it and, and was grazed and whatnot. So it's not like it was being really well managed, but just the fact that it hadn't been continuously cropped um, for, I mean, it's been like that for at least 15 years. It hasn't been. And, and, and just, just, just from that, their, their yield was huge compared to the yields that they get in, in the farm, in, in the farmland that's just continually every year extracted, extracted, extracted. Yeah. 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 I mean, on a lot of those farms, it doesn't take a whole lot to really turn them around. I mean, uh, 
it's it's effort and it's you know a certain mindset and it's the willingness to to do something different which is probably the hardest part but in terms of like applying an actual tool or practice to get a good response it doesn't take a whole lot it really doesn't yeah the um i'm really interested in uh and i wonder maybe kind of if, if you'd be willing to say more just about maybe agroforestry and, and civil pasture practices that you could see like um maybe particularly in if, if if you're open to it particularly in the midwest just because i'm kind of a midwest supremacist <laughs> and i like yeah. to talk about the midwest um talk about agroforestry uh and or silver pasture practices yeah how, how what would those look like in, you know maybe in the heartland yeah. So, I mean, first of all, I guess I'd, I'd say most of my experience with agroforestry and, and silvopasture and, you know, that sort of stuff is in the tropics. That's kind of where I've, I've, I've focused um, for almost 20 years now. I did my first project uh, about almost 20 years ago. And that's kind of what most interests me and where I see a ton of potential and, you know, just... Okay. Well, then, then talk like, about but, that. Then talk about that, about that a little more. That that's fine. Well, I, I, you know, I'll stay get there. Let me with that. No, I can. I'll still. I'll still get to what you asked. I think because um because it's something that I think about. I just don't. It's I don't have as much experience. Um, but um, you know, I I love the the idea of integrating things like chestnuts. Um, mm-hmm. and there are a bunch of people doing that. Up, you know, n- not only in the Midwest, but um in the, you know, kind of the Eastern part of the country. Um, I think that's, um, I mean, there's just so much potential there. It's such an an incredible tree. It's one of those trees that, um, you know, gives not only food, but incredible timber and grows fast and, you know, so many benefits. I I love, uh, you know, multifunctional trees. And that's part of the reason why I've always been drawn to the tropics because there are so many different trees there that are, you know, multifunctional in that way. They're, you know, incredible hardwoods, fix nitrogen, you know, grow fast, um, you know, provide the right amount of shade for the understory, et cetera. So um, I see chestnuts as, you know, kind of one of the best trees available under that category in the, in the, in the um, you know, North America. And then there, you know, lots of the oaks, um things like uh um black locust i i really like a lot honey locust even um no i got one I, I got a blood flu i got a blood feud with the honey locusts but um, yeah you have to manage them properly <laughs> i think i've control. had to set up a couple pastures that uh were maybe 10 uh, 5 to 10 years overgrown with honey locust and it's the worst job i've ever done in my entire life yeah um, every worse than black locust yeah, well, the black locusts don't have those thorns. Like at least the one, the, the oh, they don't. No, 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 not the black locusts here. They're just they they glow. They wow. grow beautiful and straight. And um, it's I they're a favorite tree of mine too. But the honey locusts, they just look like uh, we we my sons nicknamed them murder trees because they just look so violent. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Where see where I live, the black locust. It's the opposite. Honey locusts don't have thorns, and huh. the black locusts if you if you prune them even in the slightest they send out you know suckers from the roots that come up with these you know thorns like this big so you have to be very careful with 
you know, managing them or, or trimming them in any way. Um, but anyway, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's all, it's all a question of management. Um, but, uh, yeah, a lot of those, I think a lot of those trees are, are great. You know, I, I, like I said, I look to these kind of multifunctional trees, um, of which there are more beyond what I just mentioned. And then, you know, integrating animals, you know, whatever, whatever makes sense, um, you know, cattle, sheep, goats, whatever. Um, and I like, um, you know, like for example, Mark Shepard, I don't know if you've, yeah, you're, you're fairly close. I don't know if you've been over in that area. I haven't been um, to his place. He came down here and did a workshop at a friend of mine's place once, like, six yeah. or seven years ago. So I got to see him. I went to that workshop. And um, so, yeah, I'm familiar with his work. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that type of system is, is really interesting. And I don't know if he's got animals integrated into that at this point, but um, you know, I, I think that works. It, it can be designed for that purpose. Um, there's um, you know, there, there's so many options. Uh, there's a cat. I got I got animals integrated everywhere here. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, and I don't know. I don't know if there's something more specific you want to go into, but I basically what I'm saying is there the potential for those types of systems in the Midwest. I think is is really, you know, pretty great. Um, and it's just a matter of, um, you know, the right incentives. Um, you know, maybe shifting some of those corn and bean subsidies towards, you know, tree crops and silvopasture. Um, and then there's a, know, there, there is a big uh, program that, yeah. is a, that, that is available that just, they, you know, they, they're just accepting applications now. It's a joint program with the USDA and, and the uh, Nature Conservancy, I think. And yeah, uh, to put in a lot of, uh, we're not ready. The first deadline, uh, came and passed and we weren't ready to apply here but it's um it's a it seems like a very cool thing and it is just that it's it's you know uh, putting up some money for installing civil pasture systems because that is the the to me you know there's the 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 mental piece of it which is not insignificant i mean with uh, uh farmers a lot of, like we've we've planted uh, a few thousand trees and and you know when you talk to farmers it's sort of like yeah you know, we, we work like hell to get the trees out of the fields you know, yeah. like, that's what our ancestors have done. It's like we try to like get them go. Like, why? Why are you putting the trees back? Um, so there's like a mental hurdle. But then the other one is uh, the huge one is it's just really expensive. You put trees, in yeah, the upfront and, cost. And you tend them, and it's a huge upfront cost, and you don't get a return for quite a while. Um, and so, yeah. um, so, programs like this uh, can make just a huge, a huge difference. Um, because, you know, not most people who are interested in doing this are, you know, there's a ton of people, you know, you might be bootstrapping or something like that. And, and, and you know, the, the, the sort of capital it requires up front is uh, daunting. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, it's true. And I think there's the, the program you mentioned is a good one. And that's kind of I think that this is the first year that it's it's yeah. being rolled out. Um, and I think there will be more. Um, I mean, there's just so many benefits, you know, if you, even if you're just looking at animal health alone, I mean, incorporating trees and providing, uh, you know, some shade is, um, is a huge thing for animal health and even, you know, weight gain, which, you know, then leads to more meat that you can sell and, 
it's just in that, you know, kind of narrow uh, approach, it's very beneficial. And then if you plant the right tree, you've got, you know, like in the case of chestnuts, the chestnuts you can sell, the the timber after a certain point, you know, Mm -hmm. same with things like black walnut. Um, It's, you can get really creative with it. And I think that's what's kind of lacking in agriculture is just like, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a science, but also there's an art to it and it requires some creativity to really put in the best system that you can in a given place. Um, and you know, I think we, I think we are limited when we think about agriculture just solely as like this linear science, um, you know, and, you know, back to the feeding the world thing, or, you know, I've, another similar thing I come across is like people, you know, want me to cite the literature when I'm describing something or when I'm talking about something, uh, you know, that's, that's possible or that I've seen done in the field, you know, some anecdotal experience. Well, it's not true if, you know, if it's in opposition to the literature thing is like the literature in agriculture is like decades behind what's being done kind of on the most innovative farms. So if we're going to follow that, it's like, where are we headed? You know? Um, Exactly. It's really, you know, and um, the degree to which the, um, you know, the, the, big state universities are captured by the mindset of the feed the world mindset, the industrial ag mindset. It's like, well, that's the, that's the research that's been produced for decades. You know, it's like, if you follow the science, you're following a very particular view of the world. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's not, I want to be clear. I mean, that's not an anti-science take in the slightest. That's just a, limitation of the way science has been done in this area, you know, for a long time. Yeah. I mean, I, I read all sorts of papers and I apply, you know, all sorts of peer reviewed, you know, kind of conventionally approved stuff to, you know, what I'm doing in the field all the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, I, I, I have a very kind of integrated approach in that sense. But I, I, I think if, if we were to just follow what, you know, we're told is, you know, the, the right way to do it or, you know, what's been peer reviewed or whatever, it, it's just not going to work out. I mean, we're just going to kind of head down the same path and um, miss lots of opportunities. And it, and, and it really has a hard time or it's really... You know, it, it flattens out a lot of the variation, uh, you know, because it, it, you got like so many different, uh, you know, you got climate factors, soil factors, uh, slope factors. Like, there's just infinite factors of a particular place. And you can't always just, you know, blanket like I'm going to take this science over here and apply it to this place um, because the, the, there's just, you know, so many. I know. You know, so sometimes just that local and particular knowledge is so important when we talk about civil pasture. I know, like, I look at my hillsides that are bare, right? And they get scorched and they don't produce very well. But where there's a tree or two, um, the grass is abundant underneath the tree. You know, mm-hmm. like I see that with my eyes. I don't really need a study to tell me that when there's uh, the, the water that the tree holds and the shade it provides helps the nurse, nourish the, you know, helps nurse the grass. Like, it grows better when there's trees. Um, it's just obvious, you know, like, it's up to my shin, you know, and then it's struggling to, you know, and, and the grass that's completely scorched and exposed um, on a hillside, 
you know, without, without water and without shade that it, it's stunted. It's obvious. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And we don't, we don't rely on our own observations as much or even develop the ability to make valuable observations in the field. You know, it's like mm -hmm. all, you know, what, what does a lab say? And, and, you know, I, again, I, I work in that way quite a bit. I do a lot of mm -hmm. lab testing, a lot of data analysis, all that stuff. And over, you know, I've been doing this for um, about 15 years now. And I've kind of come, you know, full circle where I, I had kind of a more, um, I came into it with, from a background, like I said, in ecology, permaculture, thinking about it in that way, and then got really deep into the more kind of standard agronomy of like, just, you know, how to produce, you know, healthy, abundant plants. And that required a lot of data and, you know, a lot of math and was kind of more linear. And now I'm seeing that after doing that for so long that without, um, you know, keen observation mm. and the ability to kind of like perceive what's going on in a, in a, in an, in an environment or in a field that can only take you so far. And mm -hmm. there's, um, you know, that's like very woo woo thing to say to, to some people at least. And, you know, I'd probably get laughed out of some rooms if I, if I said that, but it's, you know, it's true. And if you look at like a lot of the people whose concepts were still utilizing or still coming to understand, that's kind of the way they approached it. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. you know, uh, 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 Rudolf Steiner is one, uh, Carrie Reams is a, incredible agronomist who had all sorts of insights that were against the grain and were just things that he perceived and things that he was able to observe and that have worked, you know, um, well, but the there's first, not necessarily you know, the first step. People forget sometimes the first step of the scientific method is observation, right? Like that's, yep. that, that's where it starts. Um, and I, and I feel like sometimes it gets built on abstracted assumptions that have already been made. And so in a way you kind of have a house of cards that's built on, on, on a foundation that isn't anymore direct observation. It's not built on direct observation. It's built on yeah. previous work, which there's a place for that. But if it becomes sort of like uh, unmoored from that direct on the ground observation, it becomes sort of increasingly useless and increasingly dependent on um, treating the earth as if it's one general thing instead of yep. instead of like being in place embedded somewhere you know it's like you can't build too high without remembering to keep your feet on the ground yeah yep yeah and a lot of it's confirmation bias too it's like you know studies are designed to um you know confirm that yeah we we do need to be applying you know 200 pounds of synthetic nitrogen per acre in order to produce you know x crop or whatever um so i think you know also like in our scientific inquiry we could be a lot more creative you know and rather than just trying to confirm kind of the industry standard we could look to you know broaden our our horizons a little bit and see what else is possible which i imagine you see this right because i feel like that's been happening in the last five or 10 years. I feel like the, the science, the, the science being done within, you know, uh, in some places is pretty interesting and is starting to be, uh, 
less sort of in the back pocket of uh, big ag, if you will, um, and sort of less dissociated from the particular and kind of maybe working with some different newer assumptions and some, some more, uh, I, I feel like that's kind of been happening a little bit more. I don't know. If yeah, that's something you would I see. think so. I, I mean, yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't necessarily have like enough of a, of a view to say how, how it is now versus before, but I think there, there definitely are some interesting things that are happening. Um, you know, the, the whole study of rhizophagy, which is, I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, but it's basically this guy, James, uh, white from Rutgers university. He has been studying the endophytic bacteria and fungi. So basically fungi and bacteria that are from the soil, but have, have a relationship with plants within their roots. So they go from soil and they're kind of subsumed by the plant roots and then they live a certain cycle of their life within the root of the plant. Um, and it's this incredible symbiotic relationship that um, he's kind of described and really gone into detail about, which, you know, if we, if we, if we really kind of look at it, it could change the way that we treat, uh, you know, soil fertility, the way we treat breeding, the way we treat um, propagation, you know, seeds and everything. Um, so there, I think there's some some really interesting repercussions from from this discovery. And at the same time, it's like it's stuff that people kind of anecdotally had observed over time, or intuited and and were managing for in certain ways. So, um, but now it's described. You know, it's like he's he's produced several papers that are really interesting. Um, and at the same time, a lot of people really push back on it and say, well, you know, it's not, you know, it's still kind of incomplete and it's still based on all these assumptions. Um, so even when there is something kind of interesting and groundbreaking, um, it really gets a lot of pushback. Uh, so I don't mm -hmm. know. I'm, I'm a little skeptical, I guess, but yeah. And, but you know, at the same time, like there's all sorts of interesting stuff that's going on in the field, all sorts yeah. of stuff that's happening anecdotally, um, which, um, you know, sooner or later, we'll, people will come around to it, you know, and sooner or later, universities will be studying that. Um, yeah. I, I just recently had an interaction with um, Jason Mock. I don't know if you've, you know oh, him on yeah. Twitter. We, uh, uh, he's been, uh, I've interviewed him oh, uh, cool. on the podcast before. Yeah, really interesting guy. I'd, I'd like to talk yeah. to him sometime. Um, and he's doing he's doing some cool stuff. And oh yeah, he he I forgot exactly what he said, but it was like something along the lines of like basically just showcasing this really cool relay cropping system that he's doing. And he said, "You would think, you know, some some university would be interested in what I'm doing, but they're not." And and I, and I said something to him like, well, that's, you know, a badge of honor for you because that shows that you're kind of, you're actually doing something interesting. They'll probably come back around in, you know, 10 or 20 years and study what he's been doing. So I see that a lot. There are a lot of, a lot of really great growers and farmers and, and other people involved in agriculture who are, you know, more at the leading edge of things. And, you know, eventually people will come back around to it and kind of, you know, study it or describe it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's really, um, really neat. Um, 
really, really neat system. And it is, of course, sorry, surprising to me that he hasn't gotten, you know, it seems like that would be something that should get, uh, you know, get the attention um, because it's really, it's really neat. Um, and, um, and the proof, one of the neat things about this, when you talk about like field work too, as opposed to the science, I mean, it's kind of, the proof is really in the pudding, right? <laughs> right. Um, Absolutely. Uh, if, if, if you, de if you design and, dis you know, if you create a, um, a productive system, well, <laughs> then you've created a productive system and yep. um, you've, by creating a pro uh, productive system, you have proved <laughs> that it works. <laughs> yep. You know, like that's, that's it. Like here it is, it exists. Um, so that's kind of a cool um you know, cool thing about that is, is, is you just, yep. the proof is in the pudding again. Yeah. And, and also like, I think another mindset that we need to, to, to get rid of is that just because something works in one place doesn't mean it should be done everywhere else. And people are so quick to jump to that. Um, and I, and, and that's another criticism that people come at me with is, well, yeah, this would never work, you know, in such and such place, or this would never work on scale. It's like, well, it, it wasn't intended to. The reason it works is because it was, it was designed for a very specific context, you know, in a very specific type of land. And it's the principles that we can take from that and apply to other places, not the, not the exact practices. And I think people get that wrong all the way from, you know, permaculture to, you know, conventional agriculture. They're just looking for how they can apply the same recipe yeah. that someone used successfully over here to this place over here. And um, I've seen it. I don't know. It's just, I think it's just um, something having to do with human nature because, you know, like if you look at permaculture or, you know, yeah, I, 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 let's start there. Permaculture. It's very, um, I mean, permaculture really teaches the opposite of it. It's a principle based approach to, you know, ecological design. And yet I, you know, when I was really into permaculture in my early twenties, people, I would see people take a, you know, an herb spiral, some practice that's popular mm -hmm. in permaculture and apply it somewhere where it made no sense or swales, you know, be putting in swales and, you know, dry land soils where other, another practice that fit the same principle would make much more sense. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Anyway, I think being able to kind of understand things from like a principle based approach is, is something that is really lacking. Yeah. Yeah. Principles are, or, or, or I think a lot in terms of processes too, instead of, uh, mm -hmm. instead of a particular yep. thing, it's a, it's a process or a way or a principle. Like if you understand the principle and you can apply it. and principles and uh, processes are inherently flexible. Right. Like they yeah. are, they, they you implement them differently based on the variables that you're working with. So there is no, yep. you, you, there's no prescription, you know, you can implement and there is also, you're not limited. You know, if you really understand the principle, you have a process, um, if you're not limited, you can apply that flexibly in lots of different environments if you're paying attention, um, and, you know, in touch with, and again, there's, there's just no, you know, Ashley, um, uh, Colby, she is the um, co-host of this podcast. She um, talks about she she kind of coined the term spreadsheet brain, and I think it 
It's mm-hmm. a wonderful yeah, I've seen that. I, I, Man, I love so that good. term. It's so yeah. good. Um, it, it's so applicable. Um, and I think that it, it's when we kind of th- want to think basically the way I see it is, you know, it's when I think in terms of, um, you know, these broadly, either broadly applicable, uh, like we want all of our not we're leading with this knowledge instead of leading with observation. You know, we have the, the yep. rows and the spreadsheets, we have the information, we have the data, and we think we can just apply it anywhere. Um, yep. You know, rather than paying attention, it's, it's that principle I talked about before. It's that idea we talked about before when you're kind of split or divorced from being in touch with the land or being in touch with relationships or being in touch with the culture, being in touch with something uh, particular, and it yep. all becomes generalized uh, into just information. Um, and yep. then, you know, you should be able to, you should be able to manipulate the information however you want, you know, it, like you don't have to, and, and you forget that like nothing happens outside of relationship. Um, yeah, no, that's, that's so good. I mean, and it's, it's kind of the, it's kind of what we've been talking about from the beginning, the, the whole feed the world thing is spreadsheet brain. Yes. The, the, the kind of like way that agriculture has been forced into this kind of linear type of system is is the same thing spreadsheet brain and um man yeah it's it, I, I think that's really kind of the the essence of it and you know the way the way agriculture or um regenerative agriculture is being pushed is the same thing it's like this um you know little kind of box of practices you know yeah. that people are applying and you see, you know, now like Bayer, Cortiva, they're all, all leading the charge with regenerative agriculture. And yeah. it's still the same old industrial agriculture with a couple, you know, best practices thrown in there. And and that's not it. I mean, that's really not it. When regenerative agriculture is about kind of discovering the essence of a, of a, of a place, of a piece of land and mm-hmm. bringing that to fruition. And it's not something that is a set of practices. And it's like, like it's you not said, just, it's very. Yeah. It's not just cover crops. No. And it's, it's a process. It's a, it's, it's a process like, like you were mentioning, and it's based on some principles. Um, so. A hopeful yeah, thing for it, me with all this is that, um, um, is that, <laughs> oh, my cat's invaded me again. She's not even supposed to be in here. Um, a hopeful thing uh, for me with all this is, uh, is that it's kind of, it's pretty fun. You know, it's, it's pretty fun to think in this way and to participate in this way. It's one of the things like yeah. to bring back Jason Mock. He works a lot with a, a guy named Zach Smith. I don't know if you know him. He's, they, they no. work together a lot. And, and, and Zach uh, has kind of developed and invented this uh, mobile barn called the uh, stock cropper. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. I've seen him. Yeah. I've and, seen him. Yeah. yeah, and it's uh, he's Zebulus Prime on Twitter. Okay, that's yeah. that's it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't know his I didn't know his new real name. Cool. Yeah, that's yeah. They were both on on together. Um, cool. And and I love that because it's and it's kind of what you're talking about too, which is what I think is really the way forward, right? Like you see a lot of these really alternative ag systems, and you see a lot of these like really conventional ones, and it's like, well we're going to have to do a little bit of the best of both in my opinion, you know, mm-hmm. we, we, we need to use technology and we need to use, um, you know, some of, uh, you know, uh, the benefits of that. And, and, and we need to use the knowledge of people who 
like 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 Jason and Zach, who are farmers and farm at that you know at scale and, and know quite a bit about their particular places and practices, um, and combine that with uh, more ecological knowledge. Mm-hmm. Uh, to me, that's that's the real way forward. It isn't you know just like yep. hey you know we're going to have a bunch of five acre plots, um, you know, and people doing really really small homesteading stuff. It's like no, it's going to be farms, you know that 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 do have some scale to them, but are done in this way that you're describing. Yeah, absolutely. That's, I, I couldn't agree more. And that's kind of the way I've approached it is, um, you know, like I, like I said, I had this real kind of like ecological minded, um, like foundation. And I saw, it was like, you know what, this isn't, this is, this is a good base. Like it's a good framework and it's a good kind of way to see the world, but I need to understand like hardcore conventional agronomy. And I went, you know, down that path and studied that for years. And that's a lot of the work that I've done. I mean, I've a lot of the, the, the farms and the companies I've worked with are, you know, very large, you know, kind of, um, agribusiness, you know, Dole, Del Monte, those types of, of, of people. And they're not going to want to do like, you know, turn their vast banana and pineapple plantations into an agroforestry system. But there's, you know, some of those principles that I can apply in other ways that, you know, kind of introduce that, you know, that, that type of mindset practice, those principles. And um, that's what I've always been fascinated with. It's like, how can, how can I go the other way? Cause a lot of people are trying to take kind of that, conventional mindset and and go towards kind of the more ecological and i was trying to take the ecological and and apply it to the you know to the conventional large-scale stuff in a way that you know worked for them meeting them where they're at and um i yeah i think it's it's a lot of fun and it's like given me um the opportunity to just learn something new every day you know with, with looking at this sort of stuff. There's always something more to learn. Um, so yeah, I, I'm, I'm with you on that. Yeah. Always something more to learn. I love that. That's, I mean, that that's, uh, I mean, that's what makes life rich is what, uh, you know, and I think that is one of the things again, that makes me kind of hopeful is because it's an interesting and fun, um, way to be on the land. You know, you're participating with it. Um, you're not, uh, just observing it or completely uh, subduing it to your will. It's a conversation, you know, it's a back and forth. Um, and you're p- applying human intelligence and knowledge and technology. You know, you're applying all of those things. Um, mm-hmm. But, it, you know, in a way that is, again, conversational with where you're at. Um, with the end goal of, uh, you know, kind of creating health, creating a healthy ecosystem and creating productivity, you know, like, yeah, like to produce, yep. that is the, I mean, that's, that's what we have to do. We have to produce, um, yep. it needs yeah, to be it's, a, it's, an ecological system that produces abundance. Yeah. Yeah. And it's dynamic too. I mean, it's, it's, again, it's not like a Excel sheet where, you know, you input two numbers and it gives you you know, the, 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 the product of those two numbers, it's like in an agricultural system, you input something and you're never really sure what's going to come of it. You know, it's like, 
from from one year to the next it might change there's another variable that's introduced and then you have to react you know so it's um i think that's what's what's really cool about it too i mean i've worked with many similar farms and but they all look they all look different you know i mean there's all there's different variables there's different things that you need to account for and react to and um you know I, that's what i love it's just like a new challenge each time and each year you know yeah every, every year that's that's for sure one of the things um this year that was neat you know on our places because we've been like i mentioned this will be i think this is our sixth year that uh, of of having cattle being of using utilizing your pasture and um ourselves and you know we went to not using um you know pass through you know uh for to you know to um for parasites and whatnot to regulate that so um and to and to do flight control so we kind of stopped doing that well of course we stopped doing that and then we had terrible flies. I mean, the flies got so bad. Um, but if you go back to using it, then you won't end up with the dung beetles that you need to control. So it's sort of one of those things where it's like, okay, so we try all these natural fly method control methods, um, oiling, things like that, that don't rely on chemicals. Um, but you're kind of tempted to go back a lot because the flies are really bad. <laughs> Um, you know, and it's somewhat time that damages productivity, you know, pink eye, all kinds of problems with, with huge flies. But then this year, um, you know, this year I was out and for the first time I, I was turning over some patties and there's dung beetles everywhere. Dung, you know, and then nice. also we had an incredible year for swallows. Like we've never seen on our farm before, just like thousands of swallows like we've always have swallows swallows are my favorite i love swallows but this year was a huge and the flies were much better this year and it was kind of those things where you just like kind of sit and wait and let nature do its thing but you're like it 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 should come back in balance right right and then it does and it's just a really gratifying thing and we'll see what next what this year brings but um, the fact that you're kind of letting nature do some of the work instead of, but there is that period of time. There's that transitional period where it's, uh, the, you, you know, the land isn't equipped to do it. Like there's not what's needed there. You know, you have to, yeah. you, you have, you kind of have to wait and get through that. You know, it's, it's, it's like with, you have the, the dead soil, it'll recover, but you have to actually stop what you're doing and change and probably go through a couple of years that are sort of rough to give it the chance to recover. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, oftentimes, and you know, at the same time, there's ways to accelerate that. I mean, I'm not like a a big believer in like, you know, like this whole regenerative agriculture model requires uh, reduction in yield, and it requires this, you know, multiple year period of of just kind of suffering. Um, it can with without proper kind of yeah. integrated management, but I've I've, I've been involved with many examples where that's not the case, where it's like quick turnaround and, um, you know, much better results. So, well, believe me, I was trying to, I was on Facebook, uh, D uh, dung beetle exchange. I was looking all over. I was trying to figure out how I could buy dung beetles and get them there quicker. I couldn't find any, um, that were adapted to sort of like this, this climate region. So I, I, I was there, I talked to a few people and got close a few times. I was like uh, trying to buy them and bring them in, but but it took a couple of years, but they found us. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. Nice. 
because I wanted to just inoculate everything. It's like, let's just get it going now. But yeah, it's seems like that would be an interesting business, but finding, uh, yeah, it's not my, apparently there's not much of it. You can, uh, in Australia, it seemed like there were more ways, like people were, like selling dung beetles and they were, uh, yeah. that seemed like more of a thing. Um, but in the U S it was really hard to find, uh, a way to buy dung beetles. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a beautiful thing is if you create the conditions, they'll, they'll come, they show up. Yeah. Yeah, that was, and that, that was what I was operating on that assumption. And, you know, it had been a couple of years. I was like, Hey, where's these guys at? <laughs> um, yeah. So, um, let's see, we've, we covered a lot here. Um, I guess, is there any other, uh, I was really, uh, I really enjoyed the aspect of the conversation. We talked about the, you know, the way that the land is sort of tied to a people through culture um, and, and food culture. Um, that's a, that's an area of fascination for me. I wonder if, uh, if there's places that you've been where you kind of see that connection still pretty strong, like it hasn't been, uh, disrupted as much where there's still kind of a uh, sort of a whole culture of uh, food uh, and, and uh, that ties uh, people to a place. Um, and if, yeah, if you had an example of that, I could describe a, you know, a system that was intact somewhere or relatively intact. Yeah, I mean, so I haven't traveled around to a lot of the places that I'd like to where that does exist so far. I mean, I, I, I hope to one day. But um, I think what I've seen more than than what you're asking is is places where people are trying to kind of recover um, the you know kind of their their food heritage and um, kind of localized food again. Um, and I guess I mean there are a couple examples. One, there's a uh, a great farm that I work with in in Guatemala. Um, that's a fifth generation coffee farm but they're also a dairy and they're now growing all sorts of other stuff and we've we've implemented a bunch of different systems that are really cool um we're gonna eventually have some workshops and courses there and kind of open it up and and share more um but they one of the 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 wife of one of the um one of the guys who's running it he's he's a he's the fifth generation um she is uh, an incredible chef and she's kind of um, her, her basically like whole objective is to reintroduce kind of old cuisine from Guatemala and utilize, you know, everything that's grown locally and um, all that sort of stuff. So she's, uh, her name's Deborah Fadul. She's, she's got a restaurant in Guatemala city that's based on all this. And it's incredible. It's one of the, it's one of the best, culinary experiences I've ever had. Um, and it's, um, you know, just stuff you would never imagine eating, uh, or combinations of things that you would never imagine eating that are just so delicious. Um, and a lot of it's like simple stuff. Um, so that's one, that's, that's kind of my favorite. Another one that I think is pretty cool, which is kind of, you know, a different spectrum of this is, um, I've, I've, worked a little bit with people at um, Blue Hill at Stone Barns. Um, Dan Barber is the chef up there. And, um, you know, it's very high end. I mean, it's like 500 bucks per person for a meal there. 
Um, but they're doing some really cool stuff, just experimenting with different varietals, different, um, you know, very like hyper local production. Um, one of the times when I was there, they made like a, a cover crop salad. So they just, you know, made basically like a, a this delicious salad of this cover crops they were using to cover their soil for the winter. Um, stuff like that, which I think is cool because it kind of introduces it to a whole nother demographic of people who would never consider um, food or agriculture in that particular way. Um, right. You know, obviously it's not that accessible at 500 bucks a plate um but it's 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 cool and you know they've kind of got that message out there a little bit more um so those are those are two that come to mind of just people who are like working to you know return to this type of food culture that that i've worked with and and know um but yeah there's there's plenty of places out there that i think still have like rich culture um i just haven't been yet yeah and the the hallmark that you're describing i think and 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 uh, you know there's a wholeness to uh to this you know when you when you think about humans living on the land um embedded in an ecology with a, a, a culture that is an ex extension of the agriculture um there, there's a wholeness to that and that wholeness can't be accounted for Right. I think this is in some ways, this is the origin of spreadsheet brain is, you know, spreadsheet brains like, well, we need to account for this. So we need things that we can count. Well, grain is easy to yeah. count. We'll pull grain out and we can count it. And then we know how productive this system is. Now, we're not going to account for the milk from your cow that you, you know, feed your, you know, your home, your homestead, your family with like, like that's, that's just whatever. That's just, you know, marginal, you know, there's so much that's just yeah. like, yeah, it's just, it's just marginal. That doesn't, we, we, we want the cold, hard um, numbers of, you know, you produce this much corn, this much grain, and then that's a productive system because we can easily count and measure that. Um, yep. but, but all the value of the wholeness is lost. The, the, the multiple relationships between species that the marginal production, um, that some that's probably not really, if you look at these systems on a whole, it's probably not actually marginal, even slightly, but it, you know, looks marginal to the, the spreadsheet brain looks marginal when you're trying to count, you, you know, count and collect and, and, and tax basically these, you know, these uh, easily produced, easily storable crops. And, and so you destroy this wholeness for the sake of, um, you know, these import export uh, commodities. Um, and that was, yeah, uh, I mean, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I mean, and, and on kind of the, the restaurant, world I, th I think it's similar i mean it's a lot easier just have the cisco truck back up yeah. and fulfill fulfill kind of the recurring order of food versus like actually go out in the field which like both these chefs that i mentioned do that they go out in the field see what's there and figure out how to combine it with the other things that are available and make something that's like incredibly delicious and um you know there's also the human health aspect of eating stuff directly from the field in season versus you know stuff that's coming from you know who knows where um so i i think that's it's, it's the same like mindset shift that's required and when it when it clicks for one you know for a farm it can then click for the chef and then it can kind of click for the consumer you know and then you've got a you've got a system right there of mm -hmm. of people who can you know, mutually benefit from each other.
Um, so yeah, it's kind of, kind of all the same thing in a sense. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's like, um, it's, it's what's so interesting and, um, exciting and also vexing about, um, all of this really is it's, you know, rebuilding, you know, food systems that are ecologically sound is, um, you know, it's also rebuilding cultures that have been sort of degraded or destroyed. Like it's all one thing, um, yep. which is again, what makes it really daunting, but also kind of fun and interesting. And I think hopeful because, um, you know, to me, it's all about reorienting towards, um, real things, uh, rather than spreadsheets, yeah. reorienting towards real, a real relationship with, uh, with the earth and a real relationship between people, um, and a real relationship between livelihood and production. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think it can be less daunting if we just think of it as like, you know, I, I think, I think some people see it as like, oh, we have to go back to the way things were, you know, and like drop all of the, you know, modern understanding or modern ways of being, but really it's just like adapting and, you know, mm-hmm. using what's worked long ago and coupling it with what works today, you know? And I, th- that's something that I talk a lot about. I think people miss that point. Like when I talk about these, you know, old agricultural systems that have worked so well, I'm not saying like, let's go back to this, you know, mm-hmm. let's go back to the way the, ancient Hawaiians produced food or whatever, but it's like, what can we learn from that and apply to, you know, our modern day predicament? Yeah. And I think there's a lot. It's it's inspirational. It's aspirational. It's not exactly again, prescriptive. I mean, that's just, it's, I mean, in some ways that seems like an extension of the whole spreadsheet brain thing. Like, well, what you're saying, this system is going to work. And of course the system will (laughs) know, no, you can't just transplant the past onto now, but you can, you learn about the principles they were using. You learn about the processes they were in and adapt them, right? Yeah. No, people get really bent out of shape about that. I mean, I've had people come at me, you know, all sorts of people with that sort of comment. Spreadsheet so, brain is yeah. a pernicious, pernicious thing. <laughs> yep. Yep. I, I think that's such a good term. I didn't know. Uh, I, I'd seen it around. I, I guess maybe I saw it from Ashley or some, at some point, but I was wondering who came up with that. Yeah. Yeah. That's, a, that's the, a really good one. It's a really good one. Yeah. It, it, it extends far beyond her. Now. I think a lot of people have picked it up and run with it because it really gets at a thing that is, uh, needs to be described. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And, and kind of like we're talking about, it's not like, you know, isolated in one, in one industry or one discipline. It's like, it's, it spans, you know, everything that we're dealing with. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's a very modern condition. Like spreadsheet brain is like a really modern, uh, condition of how people, of how we are, uh, conditioned to think about, you know, again, it's, it's not, we, we don't think in terms of holes. We think in terms of, you know, inputs and outputs and, 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 yep. and, and portions of, of, of life and not, uh, you know, as a whole thing. Yep. Yep. Well, on that note, I think we're getting, uh, close to the time I uh, had allocated for this. So did you have uh, you know anything else you wanted to add or anything that you feel like we've uh, uh, neglected? Not particularly. I think that was, it was pretty wide ranging. That was, yeah, kind of more than I 
thought we would talk about. So that's good. Great. Yeah, it's a, yeah. a great conversation. And thanks. Uh, uh, thank you very much for agreeing to come on. Sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me.